Section 15 of The Descent of Man, Part 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Sizemore The Descent of Man, Part 1 by Charles Darwin Chapter 6 on the Affinities and Genealogy of Man Part 1 Position of Man in the Animal Series The Natural System Genealogical Adaptive Characters of Slight Value Various Small Points of Resemblance Between Man and the Quadrumina Rank of Man in the Natural System Birthplace and Antiquity of Man Absence of Fossil Connecting Links Lower Stages in the Genealogy of Man as Inferred Firstly from His Affinities and Secondly from His Structure Early Androgynous Condition of the Vertebrata Conclusion Even if it be granted that the difference between man and his nearest allies is as great in corporeal structure as some naturalists maintain, and although we must grant that the difference between them is immense in mental power, yet the facts given in the earlier chapters appear to declare in the plainest manner that man is descended from some lower form, notwithstanding that connecting links have not hitherto been discovered. Man is liable to numerous slight and diversified variations, which are induced by the same general causes, are governed and transmitted in accordance with the same general laws as in the lower animals. Man has multiplied so rapidly that he has necessarily been exposed to struggle for existence and consequently to natural selection. He has given rise to many races, some of which differ so much from each other that they have often been ranked by naturalists as distinct species. His body is constructed on the same homological plan as that of other mammals. He passes through the same phases of embryological development. He retains many rudimentary and useless structures which no doubt were once serviceable. Characters occasionally make their reappearance in him which we have reason to believe were possessed by his early progenitors. If the origin of man had been wholly different from that of all other animals, these various appearances would be mere empty deceptions. But such an admission is incredible. These appearances, on the other hand, are intelligible, at least to a large extent, if man is the co-descendant with other mammals of some unknown and lower form. Some naturalists from being deeply impressed with the mental and spiritual powers of man, have divided the whole organic world into three kingdoms, the human, the animal, and the vegetable, thus giving to man a separate kingdom. Spiritual powers cannot be compared or classed by the naturalist, but he may endeavor to show, as I have done, that the mental faculties of man and the lower animals do not differ in kind, although immensely in degree. 
A difference in degree, however great, does not justify us in placing man in a distinct kingdom, as will perhaps be best illustrated by comparing the mental powers of two insects, namely a caucus or scale insect and an ant, which undoubtedly belong to the same class. The difference is here greater than, though of somewhat different kind, from that between man and the highest mammal. The female caucus, whilst young, attaches itself by its proboscis to a plant, sucks the sap, but never moves again, is fertilized and lays eggs, and this is its whole history. On the other hand, to describe the habits and mental powers of worker ants would require, as Pierre Hubert has shown, a large volume. I may, however, briefly specify a few points. Ants certainly communicate information to each other and several unite for the same work or for games of play. They recognize their fellow ants after months of absence and feel sympathy for each other. They build great edifices, keep them clean, close the doors in the evening, and post sentries. They make roads as well as tunnels under rivers and temporary bridges over them by clinging together. They collect food for the community, and when an object too large for entrance is brought to the nest, they enlarge the door, and afterwards build it up again. They store up seeds, of which they prevent the germination, and which, if damp, are brought up to the surface to dry. They keep aphids and other insects as milk cows. They go out to battle in regular bands, and freely sacrifice their lives for the common weal. They emigrate according to a preconcerted plan, they capture slaves, they move eggs of their aphids as well as their own eggs and cocoons into warm parts of the nest in order that they may be quickly hatched, and endless similar facts could be given. On the whole, the difference in mental power between an ant and a caucus is immense, yet no one has ever dreamed of placing these insects in distinct classes much less in distinct kingdoms. No doubt the difference is bridged over by other insects, and this is not the case with man and the higher apes. But we have every reason to believe that the breaks in the series are simply the results of many forms having become extinct. Professor Owen, relying chiefly on the structure of the brain, has divided the mammalian series into four subclasses. One of these he devotes to man. In another he places both the marsupials and the monotremata, so that he makes man as distinct from all other mammals as are these two latter groups conjoined. This view has not been accepted, as far as I am aware, by any naturalist capable of forming an independent judgment, and therefore need not here be further considered. We can understand why a classification founded on any single character or organ, even an organ so wonderfully complex and important as the brain, or on the high development of the mental faculties, is almost sure to prove unsatisfactory. This principle has indeed been tried with hymenopterous insects, but when thus classed by their habits or instincts, the arrangement proved thoroughly artificial. Classifications may, of course, be based on any character whatever, as on size, color, or the element inhabited. 
But naturalists have long felt profound conviction that there is a natural system. This system, it is now generally admitted, must be, as far as possible, genealogical in arrangement. That is, the co-descendants of the same form must be kept together in one group apart from the co-descendants of any other form. But if the parent forms are related, so will be their descendants, and the two groups together will form a larger group. The amount of difference between the several groups, that is, the amount of modification which each has undergone, is expressed by such terms as genera, families, orders, and classes. As we have no record of the lines of descent, the pedigree can be discovered only by observing the degrees of resemblance between the beings which are to be classed. For this object, numerous points of resemblance are of much more importance than the amount of similarity or dissimilarity in a few points. If two languages were found to resemble each other in a multitude of words and points of construction, they would be universally recognized as having sprung from a common source. Notwithstanding that they differed greatly in some few words or points of construction. But with organic beings, the points of resemblance must not consist of adaptations to similar habits of life. Two animals may, for instance, have had their whole frames modified for living in the water, and yet they will not be brought any nearer to each other in the natural system. Hence, we can see how it is that resemblances in several unimportant structures in useless and rudimentary organs, or not now functionally active or in an embryological condition, are by far the most serviceable for classification, for they can hardly be due to adaptations within a late period, and thus they reveal the old lines of descent, or true affinity. We can further see why a great amount of modification in some one character ought not to lead us to separate widely any two organisms. A part which already differs much from the same part in other allied forms has already, according to the theory of evolution, varied much. Consequently, it would, as long as the organism remained exposed to the same exciting conditions, be liable to further variations of the same kind and these, if beneficial, would be preserved, and thus be continually augmented. In many cases, the continued development of a part, for instance, the beak of a bird or of the teeth of a mammal, would not aid the species in gaining its food or for any other object. But with man we can see no definite limit to the continued development of the brain and mental faculties as far as advantage is concerned. Therefore, in determining the position of man in the natural or genealogical system, the extreme development of his brain ought not to outweigh a multitude of resemblances in other less important or quite unimportant points. The greater number of naturalists who have taken into consideration the whole structure of man, including his mental faculties, have followed Blumenbach and Cuvier and have placed man in a separate order under the title of bimana, and therefore on an equality with the orders of quadrumana, carnivora, etc. Recently, many of our best naturalists have recurred to the view first propounded by Linnaeus, so remarkable for his sagacity, and have placed man in the same order with the quadrumana under the title of primates. 
The justice of this conclusion will be admitted, for in the first place we must bear in mind the comparative insignificance for classification of the great development of the brain in man, and that the strongly marked differences between the skulls of man and the quadrumina, lately insisted upon by Bischoff, Abbey, and others, apparently follow from their differently developed brains. In the second place, we must remember that nearly all the other and more important differences between man and the quadrumina are manifestly adaptive in their nature, and relate chiefly to the erect position of man, such as structure of his hand, foot, and pelvis, the curvature of his spine, and the position of his head. The family of seals offers a good illustration of the small importance of adaptive characters for classification. These animals differ from all other carnivora in the form of their bodies and in the structure of their limbs, far more than does man from the higher apes. Yet in most systems, from that of Cuvier to the most recent one by Mr. Flower, seals are ranked as a mere family in the order of the carnivora. If man had not been his own classifier, he would never have thought of founding a separate order for his own reception. It would be beyond my limits, and quite beyond my knowledge, even to name the innumerable points of structure in which man agrees with the other primates. Our great anatomist and philosopher, Professor Huxley, has fully discussed this subject, and concludes that man in all parts of his organization differs less from the higher apes than these do from the lower members of the same group. Consequently, there, quote, is no justification for placing man in a distinct order. End quote. In an early part of this work, I brought forward various facts showing how closely man agrees in constitution with the higher mammals, and this agreement must depend on our close similarity in minute structure and chemical composition. I gave as instances our liability to the same diseases and to the attacks of allied parasites, our tastes in common for the same stimulants and the similar effects produced by them, as well as by various drugs and other such facts. As small, unimportant points of resemblance between man and the quadrumina are not commonly noticed in systematic works, and as, when numerous, they clearly reveal our relationship, I will specify a few such points. The relative position of our features is manifestly the same, and the various emotions are displayed by nearly similar movements of the muscles and skin, chiefly above the eyebrows and round the mouth. Some few expressions are indeed almost the same, as in the weeping of certain kinds of monkeys, and in the laughing noise made by others, during which the corners of the mouth are drawn backwards, and the lower eyelids wrinkled. The external ears are curiously alike. In man, the nose is much more prominent than in most monkeys, but we may trace the commencement of an aquiline curvature in the nose of the Hulot gibbon, and this in the Semnopithecus nasica is carried to a ridiculous extreme. The faces of many monkeys are ornamented with beards, whiskers, or mustaches. The hair on the head grows to a great length in some species of Simnopithecus, and in the bonnet monkey it radiates from a point on the crown with a parting down the middle. 
it is commonly said that the forehead gives to man his noble and intellectual appearance but the thick hair on the head of the bonnet monkey terminates downward abruptly and is succeeded by hair so short and fine that at a little distance the forehead with the exception of the eyebrows appears quite naked it has been erroneously asserted that eyebrows are not present in any monkey in the species just named the degree of nakedness of the forehead differs in different individuals and eskridge states that in our children the limit between the hairy scalp and the naked forehead is sometimes not well defined so that here we seem to have a trifling case of reversion to a progenitor in whom the forehead had not as yet become quite naked it is well known that the hair on our arms tends to converge from above and below to a point at the elbow this curious arrangement so unlike that in most of the lower mammals is common to the gorilla chimpanzee orang some species of hylobates and even some few american monkeys but in hylobates agilis the hair on the forearm is directed downwards or towards the wrist in the ordinary manner and in h lar it is nearly erect with only a very slight forward inclination so that in this latter species it is in a transitional state it can hardly be doubted that with most mammals the thickness of the hair on the back and its direction is adapted to throw off the rain even the transverse hairs on the forelegs of a dog may serve for this end when he is coiled up asleep mr wallace who has carefully studied the habits of the orang remarks that the convergence of the hair towards the elbow on the arms of the orang may be explained as serving to throw off the rain for this animal during rainy weather sits with its arms bent and with the hands clasped around a branch or over its head according to livingstone the gorilla also quote, sits in pelting rain with his hands over his head end quote. if the above explanation is correct as seems probable the direction of the hair on our own arms offers a curious record of our former state for no one supposes that it is now of any use in throwing off the rain nor in our present erect condition is it properly directed for this purpose it would however be rash to trust too much to the principle of adaptation in regard to the direction of the hair in man or his early progenitors for it is impossible to study the figures given by eskrich of the arrangement of the hair on the human fetus this being the same as in the adult, and not agree with this excellent observer that other and more complex causes have intervened. The points of convergence seem to stand in some relation to those points in the embryo which are last closed in during development. There appears also to exist some relation between the arrangement of the hair on the limbs and the course of the medullary arteries. It must not be supposed that the resemblances between man and certain apes in the above and in many other points, such as in having a naked forehead, long tresses on the head, etc., are all necessarily the result of unbroken inheritance from a common progenitor, or of subsequent reversion. Many of these resemblances are more probably due to the analogous variation which follows, as I have elsewhere attempted to show, 
from co-descended organisms having a similar constitution and having been acted on by like causes inducing similar modifications with respect to the similar direction of the hair on the forearms of man and certain monkeys as this character is common to most all the anthropomorphous apes it may probably be attributed to inheritance but this is not certain as some very distinct American monkeys are thus characterized. Although, as we have now seen, man has no just right to form a separate order for his own reception, he may perhaps claim a distinct suborder or family. Professor Huxley, in his last work, divides the primates into three suborders, namely the Anthropidae with man alone, the Simiidae, including monkeys of all kinds, and the Lemuridae with the diversified genera of lemurs. As far as differences in certain important points of structure are concerned, man may no doubt rightly claim the rank of a suborder, and this rank is too low if we look chiefly to his mental faculties. Nevertheless, from a genealogical point of view, it appears that this rank is too high, and that man ought to form merely a family, or possibly even only a subfamily. If we imagine three lines of descent, proceeding from a common stock, it is quite conceivable that two of them might, after the lapse of ages, be so slightly changed as still to remain as species of the same genus, whilst the third line might become so greatly modified as to deserve to rank as a distinct subfamily, family, or even order. But in this case, it is almost certain that the third line would still retain, through inheritance, numerous small points of resemblance with the other two. Here, then, would occur the difficulty, at present insoluble, how much weight we ought to assign in our classifications to strongly marked differences in some few points, that is, to the amount of modification undergone, and how much to close resemblance in numerous unimportant points as indicating the lines of descent or genealogy. To attach much weight to the few but strong differences is the most obvious and perhaps the safest course, though it appears more correct to pay great attention to the many small resemblances as giving a truly natural classification. In forming a judgment on this head with reference to man, we must glance at the classification of Simiidae. This family is divided by almost all naturalists into the Catherine group, or Old World monkeys, all of which are characterized, as their name expresses, by the peculiar structure of their nostrils, and by having four premolars in each jaw, and into the Platherine group, or New World monkeys, including two very distinct subgroups all of which are characterized by differently constructed nostrils and by having six premolars in each jaw. Some other small differences might be mentioned. Now man, unquestionably, belongs in his dentition, in the structure of his nostrils, and some other respects to the Catherine or Old World division. Nor does he resemble the Platherines more closely than the Catherines in any characters excepting in a few of not much importance, and apparently of an adaptive nature. It is therefore against all probability that some new world species should have formerly varied and produced a man-like creature, 
with all the distinctive characters proper to the Old World division, losing at the same time all its own distinctive characters. There can, consequently, hardly be a doubt that man is an offshoot from the Old World simian stem, and that under a genealogical point of view he must be classed with the Catherine division. This is nearly the same classification as that provisionally adopted by Mr. St. George Mivart, who, after separating the Lemuridae, divides the remainder of the primates into Hominidae, the Simiidae, which answer to the Catherines, the Sebidae, and the Hapalidae, these two latter groups answering to the Platherines. Mr. Mivart still abides by the same view. The anthropomorphous apes, namely the gorilla, chimpanzee, orang, and hylobates, are by most naturalists separated from the other old-world monkeys as a distinct subgroup. I am aware that Grace Chalet, relying on the structure of the brain, does not admit the existence of this subgroup, and no doubt it is a broken one. Thus the orang, as Mr. St. G. Mavart remarks, quote, is one of the most peculiar and aberrant forms to be found in the order. End quote. The remaining non-anthropomorphous old-world monkeys are again divided by some naturalists into two or three smaller subgroups. The genus Simnopithecus, with its peculiar sacculated stomach, being the type of one subgroup. But it appears from M. Gaudry's wonderful discoveries in Attica that during the Miocene period, a form existed there which connected Simnopithecus and Macacus, and this probably illustrates the manner in which the other and higher groups were once blended together. If the anthropomorphous apes be admitted to form a natural subgroup, then, as man agrees with them, not only in all those characters which he possesses in common with the whole Catherine group, but in other peculiar characters, such as the absence of a tail and of callosities, and in general appearance, we may infer that some ancient member of the anthropomorphous subgroup gave birth to man. It is not probable that through the law of analogous variation a member of one of the other lower subgroups should have given rise to a man-like creature resembling the higher anthropomorphous apes in so many respects. No doubt man, in comparison with most of his allies, has undergone an extraordinary amount of modification, chiefly in consequence of the great development of his brain and his erect position. Nevertheless, we should bear in mind that he, quote, is but one of several exceptional forms of primates, End quote. Every naturalist who believes in the principle of evolution will grant that the two main divisions of the Simiidae, namely the Catherine and Platherine monkeys, with their subgroups, have all proceeded from some one extremely ancient progenitor. The early descendants of this progenitor, before they had diverged to any considerable extent from each other, would still have formed a single natural group, but some of the species or incipient genera would have already begun to indicate, by their diverging characters, the future distinctive marks of the Catherine and Platherine divisions. Hence the members of this supposed ancient group would not have been so uniform in their dentition or in the structure of their nostrils as are the existing Catherine monkeys in one way and the Platherines in another way, 
but would have resembled in this respect the amide lemuridae which differ greatly from each other in the form of their muzzles and to an extraordinary degree in their dentition the catherine and platherine monkeys agree in a multitude of characters as is shown by their unquestionably belonging to one and the same order the many characters which they possess in common can hardly have been independently acquired by so many distinct species so that these characters must have been inherited but a naturalist would undoubtedly have ranked as an ape or a monkey an ancient form which possessed many characters common to the catherine and platherine monkeys other characters in an intermediate condition and some few perhaps distinct from those now found in either group and as man from a genealogical point of view belongs to the catherine or old world stock we must conclude however much the conclusion may revolt our pride that our early progenitors would have been properly thus designated but we must not fall into the error of supposing that the early progenitor of the whole simian stock including man was identical with or even closely resembled any existing ape or monkey End of section 15. Recording by Linda Sizemore.